Before I begin today's podcast, I'd like to give a quick layout of where I'm going to be taking this for the next several episodes and situate that within where I've gone up to now. So far, all my emphasis has been on the collapse of intellectual honesty and intellectual courage in academia and in K-12 education and the consequences that that has had on education in America. Today, I'm going to emphasize what is specifically, what is, I would say, actually almost uniquely beneficial to students about classical education, something that the classical schools really do see and that the rest of the country apparently just doesn't. It's going to be, for the next two episodes, a two-part on this, I say, vitally important category that classical education really does have right and that classical Christianity has right and that pretty much the rest of the country and even the rest of the world is persistently and pretty catastrophically getting wrong. In next week's episode, I will go into that category in detail. And then in the episode following it, I will deal with questions of competing moral theories and how this category, personhood, is so important, central, I'll even say, for getting a proper, accurate understanding of right and wrong and, and moral theory. It was my patron saint, C.S. Lewis, who famously accused 20th century academia and 20th century culture of what he calls chronological snobbery. It's a tendency that we all have in our own age. The tendency to suppose that because our ideas are newer and more recent, they must be better. They must be more accurate. The arc uh, under chronological snobbery, the notion is, the arc of history is always only ever an upward arc. The moment you even hear me say that, you should be able to see that that's obviously false. There's nothing about an idea being more recent that thereby makes it better. So in today's episode, I am going to focus on chronological snobbery, how in academia and public K-12 education it has caused the loss of awareness of this centrally important category, personhood, what its consequences are, and how classical schools and, as far as I can tell, only classical schools, offer a corrective against this. From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a show where we discuss philosophical concepts of the classical tradition and their application to current events and our daily lives. I'm David Schenk, and on today's episode, I am going to discuss chronological snobbery, the category called 
personhood, not just humanity, personhood specifically, and what consequences our loss of awareness of that category has had in K-12 public education today and in academia generally. I don't think it comes as news to any of you that the people who speak the most often and the most loudly about being open-minded, about being tolerant of others and of other people's ideas and life choices, about being open to differences and being unbigoted, are pretty consistently themselves some of the most bigoted people you're ever going to meet, some of the most closed-minded people you will ever meet. They crow and sing and dance up and down about openness or following this phenomenological philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, openness to the other, and yet themselves only practice closed-mindedness against anyone who disagrees with them. They are instantly convinced that the only reason people disagree with them is because they're ignorant and they haven't read so-and-so or they haven't read so-and-so and so they're just blinkered and couldn't possibly understand. How do we become like that? How does it keep happening so frequently that the very thing we rail against the most, we also become. How does that happen? How does it happen so predictably? And how is it that we fail to notice it so easily? Because it is really easy to fail to notice, isn't it? I've caught myself doing it. Probably you've caught yourself doing it at least sometimes. When Lewis spoke about chronological snobbery, his point, I think, was right on the money. It is not just difficult but almost impossible for people who swim only in the current culture to see the waters in which they swim. The more, hmm, the more ubiquitous it becomes, the more persistently and constantly it surrounds you, the more you just instinctively, mentally filter it out and stop paying attention to it. Like if you're driving in your car on the way to work or on the way home from work right now, the pressure of your butt cheeks on the seat of your car. That information was there, but you just filtered it out until I mentioned it. You see what I mean? Insofar as someone gets all of their moral reasoning, all of their thinking, all of their convictions from the Twitterverse, or similar such places. They swim persistently only in that one 
culture and become incapable of seeing its flaws. It becomes the only sort of environment in which they function. And so whatever weaknesses it intrinsically possesses, they will be unable to notice. How do we fix that? How can those of us who are in this dismal digital age come to see it and come to see its flaws and come to see that there are alternatives to it? And especially how can we do that without taking such radical actions as to say, you know, join a full-on, hardcore, old-order, Amish separatist community for a month or two and live without electricity. Well, Lewis's answer to this, I think, is the best one I've seen so far. Spend more time reading old books than you do reading anything else. Spend more time reading old books than you spend reading new ones. And I'll update his advice. Spend more time reading old books not contemporary people talking about old books. Spend more time reading old books themselves than you spend reading a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed or any of the rest of social media. If the overwhelming bulk of your reading is on social media, you will not come to see the potentially damning flaws of our current age. Dimly, perhaps, but only ever dimly. They will never really come into relief for you. You have to see an alternative first before they can come into relief and become visible. Reading lots and lots of old books does a great job of helping you pop out of your current culture, start to sympathetically understand a much older one that has been gone for centuries now. Look sort of, you know, sympathetically from the vantage point of that older culture back upon your own and start to see its inherent flaws. As soon as you do that, one thing I'm convinced of is your chronological snobbery will begin to evaporate like the morning dew. You will see very quickly that there is a measure of courage, a measure of moral fortitude that was possessed in the past that has been lost today and how weak, how morally weak we have become. We are not just, as Lewis would say, men without chests. We are today... Persons without spines. All too many of us. The early years of life are fundamental. They are formative of the child's entire personality. They define what it will be in many respects throughout the course of the rest of their lives. People change, of course. 
I know this better than anyone. I've changed my personality dramatically over the decades and changed nearly all of my positions on things. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I mean one's most basic impulses, one's most basic habits of responding to various stimuli, various stresses, various, you know, opportunities. That gets shaped in the first five years of life or so in a really powerful way. So how it gets shaped is enormously important. In K through 12 education today, in public education, weakness is being praised. Fragility, emotional fragility is being encouraged through the kind of coddling that goes on in public education. I've been reading Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's excellent book, Coddling of the American Mind. And so far, I have not been able to find anything in there with which I disagree. It is an excellent piece of work on how we have become so easily outraged in America and how frail and brittle everything of that outrage culture truly is. What a, what a feeble thing it is, and it is feeble. Never mind any of the you know, actual historical contingencies of how we got to this point. I'm not concerned with that for now. It's a fascinating question, and they go into it at great lengths in closing of the, or excuse me, coddling of the American mind, a response to Ellen Bloom's famous closing of the American mind. The really important thing that I want to emphasize today is one of the things that we have lost, and through it we have lost so many other things. I think we have lost our sense of compassion for those with whom we do not fully agree. We have lost our sense of patience. We have lost our capacity to persevere, our fortitude, in large part through losing sight of this category. Personhood. In public K-12 education today, nearly all of the public school teachers unconsciously, without ever having looked at it, without ever, while they were at their teacher college, without ever having been challenged to look at it, because how could they? Their teachers, their professors didn't know about it either. They have just unconsciously adopted a view of human nature under which people are these enormously environmentally adaptive stimulus and response machines. Largely through, you know, praise and punishment, malleable stimulus and response Machinery, like software, right? Programmable. Everything of what is called social constructionism in academia is ordered around this conviction that people are these adaptive and highly, indeed, almost perfectly manipulable stimulus and response machines. And in K-12 public education, they are trying to mold 
our sons and daughters into the kinds of ideological belief receptacles that they unconsciously learned to praise for no particular good reason other than everyone else was doing it while they were at the teacher colleges and also mold our sons and daughters into efficient work drones. One of the most important lessons that I think we can take from philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas is that people are not machines and anyone who says they are is confused or lying. People are not machines. We are not biological machines. We are not sociocultural machines. We are not biocultural machines because we are not machines. And any approach to education that treats the child as if he or she were some kind of perfectly socially manipulable little machine, a little moral belief engine and a little, you know, productivity engine, potentially once they mature. Any view of the child that is like that, I will call both factually dead wrong and morally perverse. The child is not a thing. The child is a person, a someone, not a something. And it takes a group of educators and an educational framework and an entire approach, right, that understands this to counteract it because everything of our current culture is almost entirely in this direction. People are things. All the same people who make all this very, very important moral noise about human dignity and the importance of the person, when you examine them closely, the category person is the very thing they themselves don't even have in their metaphysic. They don't have in their own account of human nature space for all of their own deepest moral convictions. And I don't think that's accidental. In the very loss of the category personhood, they are unwittingly working against themselves down at a level they don't see and probably won't want to look at the category personhood is still there and all of their moral conviction is ultimately predicated on it. You don't have the phenomenon of dignity, of intrinsic moral inviolability to the person without this category personhood. The philosopher Immanuel Kant understood this very well and so did the philosopher St. Thomas Aquinas. May he rest in peace. The loss of this category 
is one of the great moral disasters and one of the great intellectual disasters of our time. If parents want their children not to suffer that loss and not to suffer its amplification through the digital age where, where we come to think of ourselves in terms of what we interact with the most and what, what do our teenage children interact with the most. Digital devices with screens, with buttons on them that don't even really exist. The buttons on your phone are not actually buttons, right? It's a touch screen. They're virtual buttons. Even the buttons aren't real. And when you, when you traffic in the virtual and unreal so much, day in and day out, you start to feel unreal unconsciously. If parents want their children not to fall into that trap, I say they need to find schools that can counter it. And public schools will never do that in this country. They are all in on people being just pure products of their environments, sociocultural machines that by the social prog programmers can be fully and exhaustively socially engineered into just the sort of people that the programmers want them to be. Throughout public education, without them realizing that they are convinced of that or that that's what they are doing, that is what they are convinced of and that is what they are doing. In classical education specifically, we have utterly rejected that entire account of human nature, that entire account of what a person is. And in my experience, it's pretty much only in classical education that this has happened. In other private schools, no. Even in other private Christian schools, I haven't seen much of it. But in the classical schools specifically, because they are steeped in the classical tradition, because they have countered chronological snobbery by turning back to the old books and the old categories that have been dismissed and treated as refuted by academ academia today, not because of any arguments that have been mounted against them, these people don't have any arguments for the most part. But simply because they are old and outdated and unpopular and therefore no longer needing of any special consideration. That's the bigotry. That's the bias in higher education throughout the country today. But because classical schools specifically have rejected that chronological snobbery, and have turned back to the ancient and the scholastic for their lessons in human nature and in ethics, they are able to see the flaws, the deep sort of thoroughgoing flaws in our current age. Because of that, I say, 
classical learning is pretty much the only place reliably to go for counteracting chronological snobbery today, and especially for counteracting this almost indefensibly uninformed and morally fallen understanding of human nature. This notion that people are merely products of their environments, mere things to be molded by engineering the right sort of stimuli with which to mold them. It's not a new notion. It's been tried many times before and failed every time. It has failed every time for the simple reason that people are much more than that. It isn't just that people are not purely social organisms. That's provable for anyone who just learned some basic neurobiology. The important point here is people are not machines. We are not biological machines. We are not social machines because the ways that we ultimately end up operating are not exclusively mechanistic. Today, people get their moral lessons from one of the least morally competent sources I can dream of, the Twitter mob. People who have done no reading of any kind in ethics. People who collectively, as a mob, I mean, the Twitter mob, have no actual expertise in moral theory or human or theories of human nature at all are the most supremely morally self-confident people in America today and all across America in the boardrooms, in the halls of academia, all throughout the country, throughout everything of legacy media, Those jackalopes are the ones they're taking their moral guidance from. That is perverse. If we are going to improve as a nation, we must counteract it. And I say, the best means we have available today are in classical learning where you spend more time learning about old ideas than you do learning about new ones. And for that exact reason, you are able to see and then critique your own and everyone else's chronological snobbery. I'm David Schenk. This has been Philosophia podcast about philosophy, classical Christian concepts, and their applications to life today. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www.truenorth.fm. That's www.truenorth.fm.
www.ghostbusters.fm. <laughs>